This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom DiOria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom DiOria. Welcome to IMI's Tech Talk. It's November 15th. 2015. It's the third Sunday in November, and we're on at 5 p.m. in the New York listening area and 3 p.m. in Arizona. And today we're live from our New York offices, and we're going to be discussing cybersecurity information sharing with our guest, Tom Burns. Uh, just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you with a review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start with an increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with an interesting report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed this in many aspects of business and industry. And if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to Tech Talk. That's T E C H T A L K at IMI-US.com, and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email quest message with questions on today's topic or anything else we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX, that's 277-5369. And if you're outside the 602 listening area, call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can send us email questions throughout the show at techtalk at imi-us.com. We monitor that uh, while the show is on. Uh, if we don't get you on today's show, we'll definitely send you an answer and try and get you on next week. And we're also being simulcast on the web. So if you can't get to your radio and want to listen to us live, you can go to KFNX's website at 1100kfnx.com. And if you want to hear this show again or any of our previous shows, you can go to our website, which is imi-us.com. In the upper right-hand corner is the Tech Talk button. Click on that. Download it, uh, any of the shows. Send them to your friends. Listen to them as many times as you want. Uh, so please take advantage of that. It's free. And our first segment is our Week in Review, which increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world. It's compiled by Dan DiOria, Jose Batista, and David Brandon. Okay, got a lot of bunch of things to tell you about today. Uh, Capital New York tells us that fresh off the ballot measure win in San Francisco, Air Nib is planning to duplicate its grassroots campaign strategy elsewhere in the United States, including New York City, where the company is facing the possibility of a steep increase in fines. The company now intends to launch 100 home-sharing clubs in 100 cities over the course of 2016, the clubs would each have one staffer and some type of social networking tool and would provide training for campaign-style activity and organizing. One of those clubs will be set up in New York City where Nib's short-term apartment rentals are essentially prohibited and the city council is considering a bill that would impose fines of up to $50,000 for those in violation of the law. That measure was subject to... Con- a contentious council hearing during which members grew increasingly angry at the head of global uh, policy and public affairs. At the end of it, two sides agreed to meet in person to discuss sharing data about the company's activity in the city. Realty Today tells us that New York real estate family had their descendant, Daniel Tishman, focus his gaze on real estate tech startups as he recently took office as California-based Echo Rhythm Chairman. Echo Rhythm is a software company that offers landlords and real estate companies programs for energy efficiency. The new venture by Tishman is considered to be the 
a big move as their other big real estate companies who invested in technology, which can present a tough competition among the companies. It is also reported that Tishman sold their company's construction arm, the Tishman Realty and Construction, to AECOM, an engineering company, and wants to focus on their family's investment in technology. Tishman has a great potential for profit with EchoRhythm, as it offers a lot of services for landlords and property owners. The company's software helps heating, electricity, ventilation, and other operating systems in buildings run more efficiently. Landlords are increasingly using the system, which is based on jet engine technology to cut costs, improve quality of life for tenants, and create an improved experience for retail customers. Cranes tells us that Google has abandoned plans to open its first-ever retail store in New York City. It's interesting. The company is trying to sublease the 5,442-square-foot Soho space at least last year and wants $2.25 million annually in rent for it. The decision to abandon its retail store came after the Internet giant spent $6 million renovating the 131 Green Street location. The outpost was supposed to be one of Google's first standalone stores in the United States, putting it in direct competition with Apple, which has a host of brick-and-mortar shops that showcase and sell its products in the city, as well as other tech firms with a retail presence. Just last week, Microsoft opened its flagship store on Fifth Avenue. According to reports, Google planned to begin opening stores to sell products such as Chromebook, a line of laptops and desktop computers made by several manufacturers that operate on Google software and smartphones that run its Android operating system. Because Google is subleasing the Green Street location, it would appear that the company has changed its mind and is pulling back on its plan to open physical stores. However, Google reportedly recently opened a kiosk with a larger electronic store in London earlier this year. So that's an interesting situation that we'll follow. And PC Magazine tells us, is your business too big to use Dropbox's business? Not anymore. The cloud-based service today added a new Dropbox enterprise tier aimed at large organizations. Dropbox Enterprise provides the same security features, admin capabilities, and collaboration services as Dropbox Business, but scaled up to handle bigger companies. Now employees can have a Dropbox they love while getting the advanced capabilities they need to effectively onboard and manage tens of thousands of users, protect company data, and get the most from their investment. This week's launch also introduces three new security features for Dropbox Business and Dropbox Enterprise. Disable users' account access before deleting it, sign in as a user to maintain business continuity, and add custom branding to share link pages. Dropbox is now signing business associate agreements with businesses and enterprise customers, which mark an important step forward, helping folks meet uh, HIPAA and health information technology for economic and clinical Act compliance obligations, and that last one is called high tech. Tech News tells us, can anyone honestly say that built-in parental controls on devices really work? Well, nobody thought so. Chances are kids these days know how to work around them, being tech-savvy and all. But Disney, the company that brings you much joy to children everywhere, is rolling out Circle with Disney, a $100 box that will control what kids do on the Internet. What the creators had in mind was a device that gives parents complete control over their children's Internet usage. 
When Disney heard of it, it immediately sought a partnership with the startup. Before it was named Circle with Disney, it started out simply as Circle. Toolbox works with iOS apps, and by complete control, it means that parents and everywhere can set timers, filter online content, block ads, check insights, manage devices that can and cannot connect to the Internet, and even monitor usage history. What's more, a touch button, moms and dads can pause and restart on the Internet. On the other hand, the power button isn't a one-tap on-off deal, so sneaky kids won't be able to work around it. To use Circle with Disney, it only needs to gain access to the router. The rules can be set using a mobile app, which is free at the App Store. Okay. And um, finally, I want to tell you something from uh, Bottom Line Personal. Um, there, there are a couple of things in here. One is about uh, hotels giving uh, more perks to guests who book directly with them. So if you go to, instead of using Expedia Orbit, you go directly to the hotel website. Um, besides giving you, letting you do specific rooms and check in digitally, they're also going to offer you free Wi-Fi. So you should go on their websites and uh, see what that uh, does to you. And finally, some very useful websites from them. Send thanks to the troops and add messages to USOs. Thanks from everywhere, especially this being uh, uh, last week, uh, being Veterans Day, you can go to whitehouse.gov backslash joining forces, black says messages, live healthier, free calorie counter, food diary, fitness tracker, myfitnesspal.com, relax with the rain, reduce your stress level by listening to gentle, natural sound of the rain, rain4.me. Household resource information on growing and propagating more than 300 kinds of indoor plants, gflora.com, and create free photo calendars and print them at home, calendarlabs.com backslash photo hyphen calendar.php. And if you didn't get any of that, you can go to uh, Bottom Line Personal. Uh, their website is bottomlinepersonal.com. This is Tom DiOrio. We're on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 15th of November, 2015. We're going to take a break. We're going to get to our guest, Tom Burns, and we're going to talk to you about cybersecurity information sharing right after these messages. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom Diori. It's the 15th of November, 2015. And as I mentioned to you uh, before the break, we're going to be talking to Tom Burns about cybersecurity information sharing. Uh, Tom Burns has held a variety of engineering, sales, and support leadership positions in both private industry and the military, including U.S. Army, Army Signal Corps, Radware and Data Tech. In the, in the early 2000s, uh, Tom was Senior Vice President of Technology at Zero Gravity Internet Group, a venture capital fund that provided the initial financing to, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Oyingo, you can correct me, which you know today as Google AdWords AdSense. Tom has been involved in the Internet and related technology since he was first logged on to Ethernet in 1981. Tom, thanks for taking uh, the time to be with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's uh, always good to 
be able to talk about things to a broader audience. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the topic of the show first, and then we can get into into some discussion of it. But define for our listeners who might not be familiar with cybersecurity information sharing. What is that? What is that all about? It's a very broad area um, of of discussion, but in a nutshell, what it refers to is sharing information about vulnerabilities, which is what are used to steal things from people, the attackers exploiting them, and also the people who have been harmed by this. That's the the three general areas. Um, There's obviously other things that go into that, such as sources, methods, um, actual raw data, samples of the viruses and malware, um, log files that indicate what happened. But at the end of the day, it's talking about the who, the what, and the how of events in cyberspace and the actions of both the defenders and the attackers. Okay, so there's something called the CISA, which you can define for us, and it passed the Senate by a vote of 74 to 21, I see, and uh, it's controversial, but the supporters say it's going to help thwart hackers through greater information sharing between companies that have been the victims of what you just described, malicious uh, infiltration, um, and law enforcement is trying to follow up on these and catch the bad guys. But opponents say that the bill is invasive and it's a little more than an excuse for intelligence agencies to engage in warrantless surveillance, which we've heard a lot about. Who do you think is right? I mean, what can you expand? Tell us what the CISA is first of all, and then. Describe each of the positions and what side you think is more correct? Yeah. So, like anything else related to public policy and law, both sides typically have a a good amount of truth in what they say. Um, The Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act is actually not a single act. So, uh, what passed in the Congress was a Senate bill called 754, and there's a Title I to it, which deals with cybersecurity information sharing. But like everything else Congress does, uh, there's a whole bunch of other things in the law as well. So there's a title about how the federal government, is Title II, how the federal government should enhance their cybersecurity. There's a Title III about actually assessing the workforce of the federal government and its suitability to cyber defense. And then there's a Title IV, which is a catch-all of other cyber matters, and there's a whole bunch of other things related to State Department, law enforcement, emergency services, health care. And needless to say, you've got enough things in a bill with that much in it that people can say all kinds of things about it. And in most cases, they'll have something true in what they say. Um, the controversy here is like with all other things in law. Um, everybody's ox got gored a bit. Nobody got what they wanted. The fundamental principle of sharing information is very useful. In cyberspace right now, what we have is much more like what we had before the creation of modern countries and law enforcement. It's a lot more like the medieval world. Everybody's got their own castle, 
and their own private army, and they're all defending themselves, and the barbarians are running around in the countryside. And they'll come up against the castle, and they may not get in. That castle's well defended. So they'll go down the street, and they'll sack the village, and go find another castle, which they might get into. And the one castle doesn't tell the village or the other castle that the barbarians are coming, and how many of them there are, and what type of weapons they have, so that they could defend themselves. So the idea behind information sharing is twofold. On the one hand, the really big castle, the federal government, has access to lots and lots of information, but they haven't been sharing it very well with the other smaller castles, the big companies, or the villages, which is the average person. The idea was that they should do that. Now, they've been doing some of that through a public-private partnership called InfraGuard, which you have to apply to get into, and, uh, and they've been doing some information sharing there. The other side is that they want to enable people to share, enable and encourage the other castles and the villages to share information with each other and with the big castle so that everybody can work together and effectively do what we do in the real world now. We don't all live in castles with private armies. We have police forces. If somebody in your neighborhood sees someone going around, you know, rattling doors or pulling on the doors of cars, they call the police, the police come, pick the person up, and they put them in jail, taking them out of society. That's the basic principle behind information sharing. Unfortunately, you start off with a really good idea like that, and it starts to go through the legislative process, and people start larding things on top of it, and then you have other interests to say, well, okay, but I won't share with you if it makes me look bad, and I don't want the liability. Oh, and there are all these state governments' laws about disclosure. Well, you know, this is bad for my reputation. I don't want to do that, so I need immunity. And then you know, the federal government says, well, we really want this information, and we'd like to get a lot more information than you're willing to share with us, they say, well, you need to do this. And so in taking a very good basic idea that the government and citizens and organizations should share with each other what they know about who's trying to attack them and when they've been attacked, you wound up with this extra layer of sharing a whole bunch of information that people may not want shared about them. And on the other hand, providing a lot of cover that removes some of the protections that people already have for their private information in cyberspace. So that's uh, pretty convoluted. Uh, we're going to take a break now, but I do want to ask you a question about the uh, law that was passed. Um, based on what you said, are organizations required and in what time frame to divulge that information? But we'll hold that thought until we take this break. Uh, this is Tom DiOrio. We're live on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 15th of November, 2015, and we're talking to Tom Burns about cybersecurity information services. This is our half-hour break, so you're going to get the uh, national and international news. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after that. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOria. 
And it's the 15th of November, 2015. Our guest today is Tom Burns, and we're talking about cybersecurity information serving, uh, sharing. And uh, before the break, uh, Tom was filling us in on uh, a Senate bill. And I guess one question I have, it passed the Senate. Does it need to go to the House, or is the Senate the sole um, legislative body that needs to approve it? That's question one. And then question two is, did uh, legislation require that businesses share the information or say it would be nice if they shared the information or share the information in a timely manner? Um, what are the nuances? Well, so uh, to answer the first question, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, the House passed a different, a similar but different bill. Um, my understanding is that they have to do a reconciliation, but the one that people are mostly talking about right now is the uh, the Senate bill, uh, Senate 754. Um you know, it doesn't require the sharing of information by private entities with the government. It does incent it because it gives them air cover uh, for um, for liability if they share it. And that's important, and one of the objections that people have raised to the Act is based on that, because by giving them cover from liability if they share, you're effectively removing a lot of the incentive to be more secure in many respects. And the second piece is it does require that once it's shared with any part of the federal government, it must be shared with all of the other federal – it says all of the appropriate federal entities, but <laughs> – Appropriate is a very broad term. The federal government. <laughs> Does one agency own this? There are no. There are uh, guidelines to all the different agencies. Um, there's clear guidelines to the attorney general, and I haven't read the whole um, the whole act yet. Um, there are guidelines for Homeland Security, who seem to be the primary you know, agency that they're expecting to provide the notice and access and everything else. But it's not, it's not specific that that's where the, um, all the, you know, all of the guidelines can come from. It looks like by my reading, each agency can actually decide what's appropriate themselves. Now, does it work in reverse? The information that the federal government finds, is that also supposed to be shared? Is that a requirement? Yes. It's, it, it is, it authorizes it, okay. Um, there's some there, there's there's some wiggle room, fair fair amount of wiggle room actually, for the federal government to decide what it does and doesn't share. Okay, the specific language says you know in consultation with the appropriate, you know, to do timely sharing of classified with cleared. And timely shared with relevant entity. Again, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that having been said, the government has tended to have a pretty good track record in sharing their best practices, which is one of the things that they're talking about. Uh, the National Institute of Science and Technology (NIST) uh, does a very good job of publishing best practices and, and standards in security. Um, and they haven't been bad within the InfraGuard context, uh, of, of which I'm a member of, uh, in sharing 
with private entities, except that they tend to be late relative to the other sources. One of the things you do need to understand is that there's a lot of information sharing going on right now in a unsanctioned and in some cases we're not really sure if we're allowed to really do this way among cybersecurity practitioners in government, in industry, and just private researchers. So in some respects, this does actually bring us out of the shadows, but it has, as with anything, its, its advantages and disadvantages. I mean, timing is obviously critical here, I would think, um, because you need to find out as quickly as possible that somebody's attempting to breach an organization's uh, security uh, and whether they failed or succeeded, you need to know about that. So whatever the attack was, you can protect yourself from it, assuming that there's a protection that's out there. Um, does it address timing here at all, or is that not included? It's interesting. Um, you know, you kind of these things are drafted by lawyers, so you have to assume that the omission of certain uh, things is as important as the in, the inclusion. So, in the sharing of information by the federal government, the first two things do say the timely sharing, okay, and that's of classified cyber threat indicators with clear representatives of relevant entities, and of cyber threat indicators or information that may be declassified and shared at an unclassified level is said to be timely. But the other three things that the federal government is supposed to be sharing, they do not say the timely, okay, in front mm -hmm. of them. They just say the sharing or the periodic sharing. So it, it is actually quite interesting uh, what, they've, what they've put in there and, and how they, they did that. Um, obviously, they're, they're not trying to uh, – they don't say that, um, that individuals or entities should share in a timely manner when it's sharing with the government. But very interestingly, in taking the information that's shared with the government, they specify that it must be done automatically uh, with minimum delay – they use phrases like as quickly as operationally practicable with all federal agencies. So while they're giving themselves a fair amount of wiggle room in terms of what they share out in timing, once you share it with them, they're mandating that they share it among the entire government as fast as possible. That's interesting. Go, let's go back a little bit to what you're saying about, uh, so I can understand and our listeners can, secret versus not secret. If you're describing a security threat, but not the data that was attacked or the agency that was attacked or the type of data specifics or in general, why would secret or not secret play here? Wouldn't you want to get whatever the attack was? you know, the the information about the attack out there, irrespective of what it was attacking? Well, those of us who work in the industry uh, who, are, who are cyber defenders agree with you. Um, but the thing you have to remember is, in some cases, the attacker or the person or the entity that wrote the attack may well have been the federal government or a contractor to them. Uh, there's actually a very 
a very fundamental conflict between the interests of government uh, in relation to this and the interests of civilians uh, in relation to this at two levels. The first is the law enforcement angle. Um, from a defender standpoint, from a business standpoint, you want to stop an attack in progress as fast as possible, preferably prevent it in the first place. Law enforcement, on the other hand, will want to let it run for long enough to gather enough evidence to convict the perpetrator. In the case of national security, um, I used to have a clearance when I was in the military, and, and I could get one again if I chose to, but I, I've chosen not to. The federal government actually classifies a whole bunch of things that are available by other means uh, that are necessary for us to do our defense. And if you have a clearance, you actually couldn't use those outside of a cleared environment. So, uh, so, so that's the one thing. And as I said, on the other hand, and, you know, we can all get Stuxnet, um, the federal government, I, Obama said it as far as I know, so uh, this is not breaching any protocol. Um, the federal government creates cyber weapons. Um, and so, you know, they will not share that classified cyber weapon or zero day if they think they can use it to their benefit. Whereas in the civilian world, if a researcher discovers a zero day, in other words, a vulnerability that there is no current mitigation for or signature or, or a patch for, they typically publish it, one, to help people defend themselves, and two, because that gets you a lot of cred. Gotcha. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a break. This is Tom DiOri on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. We're talking to Tom Burns about cybersecurity information sharing. There's a lot here to cover, um, so we're going to come back with our last segment after this break. Please stay tuned, and we will be right back. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOria. It's Sunday, November 15, 2015. Our guest today is Tom Burns. We're talking about cybersecurity information sharing. And before we get into our last segment, Tom, if our listeners want to follow up with you, what's the best way for them to do that? They can come to uh, my company's website, which is threatstop.com, one word. Um, we have a contact analyst talk to an analyst form there. Um, I get to see all of those, uh, or they can uh, call our company name or send an email to uh, security at threatstop.com. That's uh, where the people who do the research and handle security all work at. Um, if they want to reach me directly, um, I'm Tom B. at threatstop.com. And uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what your company does? So ThreatStop was actually founded to do information sharing of threat indicators in an automated way, totally voluntary among customers, and then push that indicator data out to block the threat actor's infrastructure. So we've actually been doing information sharing. Uh, we were funded with a grant from Department of Homeland Security initially, and then subsequently we've raised some money from the two 
original investors in Google, to take information, again, totally voluntary basis, and share it so that we can get away from this medieval defense and go to a more social, normal, modern defense. You have to do that automated. Um, as Alan Turing famously said, it takes a machine to beat a machine. The attackers have big networks of machines they're using to attack us. What we do is we take all of the firewalls and all our users and the companies that work with us and work together to protect each other in an automated way. So we actually do what CISA is supposed to enable. The difference is it's completely voluntary and uh, it's a full opt-in solution that's under complete control over the users. The users control what they share and with whom. So why wouldn't most organizations be in a type of operation like you're providing, whether it's yours, I don't know if anybody else does it, but uh, why wouldn't they already want to do this? Well, so, so a lot of them do. Um, there are what's called the um, information sharing and analysis centers, uh, which tends to concentrate based on uh, industry type. So academia has REN ISAC. The financial services have FS ISAC. Uh, law enforcement agencies have what's called MS or multiple, multiple source ISAC. So there's a lot of this been going on. The idea behind CISA was to sort of formalize it and provide a legal umbrella that legitimized it. That was the original idea. It was a good one. As I said, as happens in the legislative process, a whole bunch of other things got shoehorned into it with the result that people can say differing things about it and actually find things to truly substantiate that in the bill itself. So there's no real push to get all these different organizations that you mentioned and I gather others that are out there to work unified under this uh, this bill. I mean, that's not a goal of it. I think that's probably what they're trying to get to. Um, you know, obviously, providing the liability shield is going to be a strong incentive for larger entities to do that. Um it's it's good that in the final version uh they did say you know as as clearly as practical to anonymize victim information but there's so many holes in in in, in the protections there that uh you know what people say about potential uh potential spying and privacy violations there's some validity in, in those concerns so with all the negativity and the holes and the bureaucratic uh, infrastructure that is set up here or not set up here, what's next now that you have this bill? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I guess given given the way things happen in this country, there's probably litigation. <laughs> um, oh, good. <laughs> the uh, the I think what's next is. Twofold. There, there will be the usual screaming and yelling and litigation, and and that will that's you know there's a, a whole group of people in the world who have to that's what they do. I think that uh, those of us that have been working in this field for a long time will continue to do what we've been doing, um, sharing information with each other in and while trying to respect people's privacy and focusing on dealing with the bad guys as opposed to shaming 
the, the, the victims. Um, it may, there are, there are parts of the act that may make our jobs easier in that we, we have some you know, structural legitimacy that says, hey, it's okay if we're doing this for the purposes of cybersecurity, as long as we make a best effort to maintain privacy. You know, we didn't have that shield before. We were operating in uh, not, not necessarily a gray area, just an unregulated area. But there's also the potential that, you know, any time you have something that has this many caveats and, and almost and ill-defined controls, that you're going to have someone who takes it and uses it in a way that was never really intended or certainly um, is not to the benefit of the citizenry. And, and that's, you know, I think all of those things are going to happen. Now, is the public involved in this at all, or is it really, you know, a group of people like yourselves that have been living with this, you know, now for for a long time? I mean, is this something that the public should be aware of, that they should be talking to their senators about, uh, talking to organizations like you, or is it something that's a level above or below them, however you look at the perspective of this? No, I I think the public should be very well aware uh of the privacy implications. I mean, it, it, it seems that people are a bit too cavalier about their personal information online, and now they're in a situation where that personal information can and will be shared uh, much more broadly and in an automated manner. Um, I think they also need to be aware that some of the protection they think they may have in, the, in liability if their information is shared, uh, has been eroded here. Um, and they should be aware. So they need to be aware that they really shouldn't be sharing stuff that they don't want everybody else to have uh, with entities online as much as possible. And if they want to learn more about this act or bill, uh, where can they go? Can they go to some government agency and, or they just Google CISA or what? what's the best way? Well, the whole bill is available online at congress.gov. Um, okay. And, you know, it's Senate Bill S-754. Um, you know, obviously the people who are making noise about it, um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the Center for De- Democracy and Technology who are opposed to it have very good analyses of why they believe certain parts of these the, the, the bill are, uh, are a bad idea. Um, and, and like I said... When you've got something that's this comprehensive, people don't necessarily have to be wrong to be on the opposite sides of it because there's so much in it. We only touched on tier one, so there are three other tiers that we didn't even get to. So, Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show, Tom. This is very informative. I think we're going to need to have you back after this plays out there for a little while and get your perspective on how it's going. But thank you for taking the time to be with us and educate us on cybersecurity. Thank you, and I'd love to come back. Next week, we're going to be live from our New York offices with our Week in Review, and we're going to be discussing CES New York. It's the preview that they do of what's going to be happening in January out in Las Vegas at the CES show. Um, So we've got a couple of shows on that, and uh, we'll give you one next week. 
they held that uh, last week in, in the city, and we were there uh, doing interviews. I want to thank Terry Ruggiero, IMI's President, Dave Brandon, Dan Diori, and Jose Batista for our Week in Review. Terry Redden is our producer. Tess Henshaw is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Matt Campagni. And without Robert Bamback in the KFNX AM 1100 production department, you wouldn't have heard a word we said. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 5 p.m. in New York on KFNX AM 1100. Remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. Have a great week, and thanks again for listening.